A warning for listeners. This podcast has descriptions of war, terrorism, and violence. It's important to hear, but it can also be disturbing. I have been in more than 500 combat missions with the troops. This is Fred. He worked as an interpreter for more than a decade during the war in Afghanistan. I've been in over 100 attacks like they were trying to kill us. But every day was a new day. Every day was a new... Uh, the one who changed my life, I'm going to tell you that one. Uh, back in uh, 2007, I was in the eastern part of Afghanistan, a province called Lagman Province. It's L-A-G-H-M-A-N. Fred was in Lagman to help U.S. soldiers search for Taliban leaders. One day, he was standing outside this base, chatting with a bunch of Americans and other Afghans. It was a nice spring day. And Fred says they had this gorgeous view. It looked down on a valley with a small town nearby. A mountain and green forests were on the horizon. So the, the, the troops said this took some pictures. We did it. Just for fun. So we took some pictures. I gave it to the lieutenant. He was supposed to print it for me and give me a copy. Fred didn't think anything of the pictures until hours later, in the middle of the night, when his company commander knocked on his door. I woke up. I said, why? Do you have a mission? He said, no. Do you know this guy? In the background of one of the photos, they could clearly make out someone, a high-ranking Taliban member, a man they had been looking for, there are two guys that are walking behind us. Just accidentally, they came to the picture. Their main Taliban leader that you are looking for. They're in the background of that picture. Now Fred knew their target was close to the base in that town. So the next morning, Fred called a few of his sources nearby. He told them there was a reward on the Taliban leader's head. One of my sources, he called me back. He said, uh, if you guys want to come to arrest him, he's in town right now. Fred and a small team of Americans headed five miles into town. They found the Taliban leader, where Fred's source said he'd be. Fred was the point of contact and approached him. He was 100 feet away from me. Called him, hey, stop. He turned around. He said, come here. So he walked towards me. Uh, when he get close to me, I said, uh, what's your name? He didn't use his complete name. I said, okay, just walk with me. He said, where? I said, don't worry about it. Just walk with me and don't say a word. He said, uh, if you move, you're going to die. He said, look at the troops around me. They're all locked and loaded. They're going to kill you. But walk with me. So Fred walked him through town and back toward the base. When we get close to the base, I told him, put your hands in the back. I had cuffs on me. I cuffed both his hands. So we brought him in the base. They called helicopter. Helicopter showed up, pick him up right away. So he was gone. Like 30 minutes, he was out of that town. But then crowds started to gather outside of the base. Within a few hours, it had swelled to hundreds of people protesting, 
yelling at the Americans. The man Fred had arrested was a local leader. His family and friends wanted him back, and they were angry. They didn't recognize the Americans that took him away, but the crowd did remember the Afghan who was always around town talking to them. They remembered the Afghan who put their friend in handcuffs. Since he was close to that base, all of his family, brothers, sisters, wife, kids, they saw me. And they said, oh, okay. They just called me Fred. Oh, Fred got him. Next day, our intel told me, hey, his brothers and family is trying to capture your life. So being a, an Afghan translator, I was not allowed to carry a gun. After that, they, they gave me a gun. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Allies, a podcast about America's eyes and ears in the war in Afghanistan. I'm your host, Bryce Clem. In this episode, you'll hear about Fred, an Afghan interpreter who served for more than 13 and a half years during the war. Fred will describe his work for defense contractors and how that work put him in the Taliban's crosshairs. You'll learn about his fight to get a special immigrant visa the program that we told you about in the last episode. This is episode three, Ongoing Threat. Fred was born and raised in Kabul, and he speaks five languages. My main languages is Persian, which is Farsi or Dari, they're all the same. So I speak Pashto, which is second language of Afghanistan. I speak a little bit Urdu and Arabic and English. Fred has known war for most of his life. He remembers the Soviets fighting the Afghans in the 80s, the violent Taliban rule in the 90s, and the U.S. invasion in 2001. I thought it's going to be another war, like Mujahideen Taliban did, Mujahideen and Soviet did. So it's going to be the third one. I never thought about my life is going to get changed one day. Before the U.S. invasion, Fred says he wandered through his life. Half of the day I was in school. And half of the day I was jobless, just not doing anything. I was kind of bored sitting at home. That's why we had the private classes to go and learn English. I went to college for a month, only one month. I told my dad one night, I remember I said, Dad, I don't want to be in the college. I'm not a college person. I would like to do something maybe better than the college. Then he said, okay, you can choose. You want to work for one government or you want to work for two government? Ask him, what do you mean by that question? He said, if you want to work for your government, join Afghan National Army. If you want to work for two countries, United States and Afghanistan, since you know English, then go ahead and be a translator. Be with these young soldiers and help them out since they're in your country. Fred had never met an American before. He'd only seen them in action movies like Rambo. But now he heard American troops were at Bagram Air Base, about 90 minutes away. Apparently, they were hiring Afghans. So Fred drove to the base and just walked up to the front gate. I saw a few soldiers uh, watching the gate and they asked me why you're here. I said, I heard somebody's hiring people who speaks English. I would like to be a translator. Oh, you have to wait, there's a company 
an American company is called Titan. They're hiring people. The Titan Fred is referring to was Titan Corporation, a defense contractor. Fred worked for three different contractors while he was in Afghanistan. These companies hired lots of Afghan interpreters. They did the vetting and handled their paperwork. Noah Coburn is an anthropologist who spent years in Afghanistan studying the war. He did a lot of research into these defense contractors. I think historically, Iraq and Afghanistan are going to be remembered as these contracting wars, wars that were fought primarily by U.S. contractors. Yes, it was the Marines, it was U.S. military personnel that were oftentimes leading the missions. But behind them, the people delivering the fuel, the people guarding the bases, the people doing the labor of war itself were either Afghans or what they refer to as TCNs, third country nationals. Defense contractors in war were not new. Coburn says the U.S. relied on them in some form or another in past conflicts, but they were always a small part of the mission. By the midpoint of the war in Afghanistan, you had one contractor for every military personnel. So we had an equal number of contractors who were working for the U.S. government as we had soldiers. And there are a lot of translators that were involved in the war efforts who were put in particular danger because oftentimes they were the face of the war itself. After Fred went to Bagram looking for work, company reps put him through the ringer. Titan took Fred's fingerprints and got pictures of him. He went through a medical exam and all sorts of health screens. So then they took me for an investigation. It took me a couple hours because they asked you tons of questions from everything. You know, I was just graduated from high school, being one month in college, I say whatever I had in my mind. I didn't hide anything. I said, if you want to hire me, you can. If you don't, it's your decision. But I'm telling you the truth. So I told them everything. And uh, I remember after two hours, they said, you pass. Just wait right here. We're going to give you a badge. Fred was glad to have a job. But he admits he was nervous around all these Americans. He didn't know what their intentions were in his country. But uh, after uh, spending a week, then a month, two months, we realized, soldier and myself, that no, we have the same idea. When the troops, young troops, left their wife, brother, sister, mom, and dad, they came to Afghanistan, and they were trying to help my country. Being an Afghan, I, that was my job, to keep them safe, secure, and send them back home. We were like family, brothers. Fred was hired in 2004, when the war in Afghanistan seemed to be going well. The Taliban had been pushed to the outskirts by international forces. The U.S.-backed government had grown. Afghans just elected their first president. The previous spring, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld even told reporters that major combat operations were over. The bulk of this country today is permissive. It's secure. It is clear that that's the case by virtue of the fact that we see um, people returning to their country from all across the globe. Fred was sent to Ghazni province near the Pakistan border, where he passed another background check. Most days at work, Fred ended up on patrol, driving around in a motorcade of sand-brown Humvees. He went province to province with six or seven Americans. 
There were some skirmishes, some close calls with IEDs, roadside bombs. But overall, Fred says those years felt safe. My job was to wear uniform, wear vest, helmet, walk with the troops in the first line of the war. If you see somebody suspicious, investigate them, ask them questions. If they want to talk to the villager, take him to the talk to the villager. Make sure to translate the right word to the right person. Teach the truth about the culture of Afghanistan. It's a completely different culture over there. The food. What should they eat? What should they shouldn't eat? Do not shake hands with the woman if you see them. Because here no one cares, right? Over there, no, you if you talk to the female, you're gonna get in trouble. If you shake somebody's hand, a female, if you put hands on the female, it's a big problem. It's going to be a big fight. How they should deal when they're in the village. Uh, I used to tell them, like, hey, whenever you're going to the town, make sure do not step to the mosque. Muslim mosque, if you want to go, you have to ask permission. If they said yes, make sure to take off your boot. It doesn't matter who you are when you're coming. But if you want to be with the people to get some support from the people, yes, follow the rules. I move around the country. I've seen many places. Even most people, I'm sure, they never seen in their dreams. That was, that was fun times. I miss those days. Most of Fred's work was translating conversations in Dari, Pashto, and English. But he says as the war dragged on, his job got harder. In the mid-2000s, the Taliban regrouped in Pakistan and mounted a huge counteroffensive. By 2006, their attacks increased nearly fivefold, and Ghazni province got a lot more dangerous. Fred says villages and towns that had previously welcomed the Americans started to change. The Afghan government just hadn't made inroads where the Taliban now had a foothold. Since uh, the Taliban got more powers, they came through the villages. And they told people, if I see you working for Americans or talking to Americans, we're going to kill you. And they keep coming to the villages, teaching the people. Then people change their mind. But Fred kept patrolling, kept talking. He went on combat missions week after week, developing a reputation as one of the best interpreters, or terps, as the Americans called them. Fred was actually eligible for a promotion. After two years on the front lines, interpreters could apply to work inside U.S. bases, which was much safer. But Fred had a strong bond with the Americans he fought with, and he worried about letting them down. That was a big shame to tell the troops, like, hey, I would like to work inside the base. I don't want to go outside. I'm scared. It was around this time when Fred arrested that Taliban leader we told you about earlier. Now the Taliban were on his trail. Fred was working on the front lines when they came to his father's home. They came to my house. They searched my house. They couldn't find anything. They dropped a piece of paper in the yard. So next morning, my, my wife was cleaning. And she saw a piece of paper and turned it to my dad. I still have the paper with me here. Uh, one part says, we know you're working for American. If we catch you alive, your death is going to be example for those who are working for Americans. 
Fred received a threat letter from the Taliban. They were a common form of intimidation during the war. And after that, Fred was a marked man. He was sent to another province while his family was relocated. But after Fred got reassigned, he was told they didn't have any work for him. So he was sent back to Kabul. His employer told him to wait for a phone call. And that's what he did, literally. Fred sat next to the phone day after day, waiting for his next mission. He called the company now and then for updates, but he didn't hear anything. So Fred started looking for a way out of Afghanistan. Some of the Americans told him about the Special Immigrant Visa Program, or SIV, for interpreters just like him. He did some research online. At the time, Congress had allocated 1,500 SIVs a year for Afghans. And the process to get one seemed easy. An applicant just had to get a letter of employment, approval from command, and some evidence that they were in danger. And they would package that up and send it to the U.S. Embassy. But the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan wasn't processing SIV applications, so Fred had to send it to the embassy in Pakistan. He pulled all his documents together and put them in the mail. But they got lost in transit. Twice. Fred was running out of options. He couldn't stay in Kabul long with the Taliban looking for him. So he started looking for more work. I was told by my mom and dad, do not come to home. There was no other option for me. If I go home, I would be easily killed by Taliban. So Fred took another job with a defense contractor. The war was about to enter one of its most violent chapters. The Taliban still had reinforcements and weapons coming over the border from Pakistan. Suicide bombs, IED explosions, and civilian casualties spiked. In 2009, a leaked report to the Pentagon said the war could be lost within a year. Newly elected President Barack Obama announced a troop drawdown in Iraq and the surge in Afghanistan. Now thousands of additional American soldiers would join the fight against the Taliban. The U.S.'s main objective now was to train and equip Afghans to fight. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. I make this decision because I am convinced that our security is at stake in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It is from here that we were attacked on 9-11, and it is from here that new attacks are being plotted as I speak. General John Allen took over command of U.S. and NATO forces in 2011. He was the fourth commander of the war in as many years. When you think about that, waging a war that way, where every single day people are fighting and dying, people are fighting and killing, and swapping out the commander every year for four years is a problem. If you're going to wage a war that way, you have to be prepared to provide stability in other dimensions of the conflict. The Obama administration had also set an end date for major combat operations. The U.S. would start to withdraw in July 2011. And of course, there's always this conversation about victory and the victory parade and the moment of victory. And there, there was never going to be a moment of victory in Afghanistan. Instead, success would now mean Afghans would pick up the fight against the Taliban and insurgents. To do that, 
General Allen says they need to have a stable government, an inclusive economy, and a capable security force. Those three things had to happen. They weren't going to happen in short order. Uh, The end date now accelerated everything. One factor that made the mission harder was the rotation schedule for American forces. Since the beginning of the war, a Marine Corps or Special Forces officer might be in Afghanistan for a few months. Army units would typically go in for a year and then be replaced. General Allen says by the 10-year mark of the conflict, that deployment schedule was leading to some problems. You may get to become very intimately familiar uh, with the people and the terrain and the, and the environment. And about the time you're very comfortable, you're, as they say, ripping out. You're going to pull out and another unit's going to come in. The unit that was on the ground knew, in essence, what the profile of the enemy was. They knew how to react to the, the local population. Often, a new unit coming in wouldn't have that kind of situational awareness. So now the Afghans have got to get used to another unit. This unit's got to get used to them. And often there were early casualties among the Afghans and, and, you know, civilian casualties, et cetera, that came from uh, our forces not really knowing uh, the operational environment. So American soldiers cycled in and out of the battlefield. But Afghans like Fred stayed in the fight. In 2011, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul started taking SIV cases. So Fred sent his documents in again. He heard back a few months later. Denied. Fred was confused. He couldn't make sense of the paperwork. Command denied his application, and he just couldn't tell why. The process is a complex, confusing one. That's Noah Coburn again. So it really favors applicants who are well-educated, already established, have some money, have some resources to maybe pay someone to help them with it. So ultimately, those that were most vulnerable were the least likely to succeed. A big part of the problem, Coburn says, was the defense contractors themselves. These companies were supposed to have the paperwork like proof of employment. But Coburn says many of these companies were really bad record keepers. Particularly if you worked for a smaller company, and a lot of these smaller contracting companies went out of business left and right, sometimes for rather nefarious reasons of they couldn't fulfill a contract or something. And what you would see is you'd see these contracting companies sort of close up and then reopen with a new name, but the exact same personnel in it. If you worked for one of those contracting companies and they just didn't exist anymore, you were just completely out of luck. During the surge, interpreters like Fred were liaisons between the American forces and Afghan populations. But that relationship was deteriorating. You know, we had 46 countries involved international security assistance forces in Afghanistan. And everybody was doing their own job. As a human, we all make mistakes. Sometimes they made some mistake and pissed the people off. In 2012, Americans at Bagram Air Base burned copies of the Quran they had confiscated from Taliban prisoners. That sparked huge protests and violence across the country. The burning of Qurans has ignited a fire inside Afghanistan, one that's proving hard to douse. In eastern Afghanistan, a man in an Afghan army uniform shot and killed two U.S. troops, then ran back into a crowd of anti-American protesters who crowded outside their base. 
More than 200 people were injured and 40 were killed. It was a, it was a really dangerous moment. That's General Allen again. He says this is when the interpreter he worked with stepped up. General Allen couldn't use his name, but this interpreter was a former Mujahideen fighter. He knew high-ranking people in the Afghan government. And I asked him to go speak to them, to try to change the environment within which we could easily find ourselves. I mean, my troops were already being killed by Afghans over this issue. I could make the case that he saved the campaign because of the connections that he had in the moment that he worked and the things that he said that ultimately set the conditions for me to take the steps necessary to rescue the moment. With the war effort on shaky ground, the interpreters became even more essential. But the troop surge had made the backlog of SIV applicants grow. Congress had created the program in 2009, just a few months before the surge. After that, thousands more Americans were in the fight. So the demand for Afghan interpreters like Fred was at an all-time high. But there was nothing new in the law, like more visa spots, to account for the surge. So Fred, unable to get his visa, had the Taliban on his trail. Afghanistan is a small country, 34 provinces. Maybe somebody worked for government and still spying for the Taliban. They have people all over the places. Same way we had sources in the town, they have some sources too. I moved my family from location to location three times. There's no option for us. Some days they only find you. Fred says 2010, 2011, those were the worst years for him. One day, Fred was driving around in his car, delivering supplies to a base when the Taliban set off an IED right under him. He came to in the driver's seat with blood streaming down his face. I don't remember anything. I was trying to push the gas. It's a big hole. There's no gas pedal, just hole. They, actually, they missed one second because they blew up the engine. They could wait like one more second to blow up under the vehicle to kill us. When I blew up an IED, I didn't say nothing to anybody in my family. I just called my dad. I said, this is what happened. Make sure don't tell my wife, don't tell my mom. After two weeks when I went home for vacation, then uh, I told my wife. She starts crying, my mom was start crying, my sister was start crying, and uh, my wife said I made a mistake. I said, what do you mean you made a mistake? She said, to marry you. I said, you're going to die one day, and you're going to leave me and your son. The chaos was starting to get to Fred. He'd lost friends in the war, and he'd spent countless nights listening to his radio, translating Taliban plans for surprise attacks. Blasts from rocket launchers would wake him up, and bullets rattled around his boots on the battlefield. Every single day we used to get attacked. Like we used to go like 15 people come back with 14. 20 people come back with 18. And with five vehicles come back with three vehicles. Trust me, sometimes even I'm safe. When I remember the situation we had overseas with the troops, I can't sleep. 
So Fred reapplied for his visa. I process it. They complete it. They send me, you're denied. Then uh, I call all the troops I work with. I told them, hey, you guys are telling me to apply. I I'm keep applying. And uh, they keep denying my case. Somebody said, hey, ask, ask them, what does they want? What do they want for you? Fred says the embassy asked for a letter of recommendation, something written by a soldier he fought with. So he posted on Facebook asking for help. Within 24 hours, 64 people sent him letters of recommendation. But the embassy said they could only take one. And I turned to yes, embassy. They denied my case again. I don't know what to tell. I don't control the government. If they want to deny my case, it's up to them. End of 2011, I was completely giving up. I said, I'm done. I'm not coming to the United States. With no way out of the country and no real explanation for his denial, Fred says he gave up on the SIV. He wasn't an outlier. Despite Congress's 2009 bill, the State Department had only given out about 15% of the available visas. So Fred accepted his fate. I was thinking the troops is going to stay in Afghanistan forever. I will be with the troops forever. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to help these troops to bring peace and prosperity to my country. That's why I said, okay, dying in the first line of the war is much better to die at home. Let's fight them. Somebody's going to be the winner. We'll come back to Fred's story later in the season. Next time on Allies, you'll hear about the bond formed between an American soldier and an Afghan interpreter on the battlefield and how they tried to fix the SIV program. Allies was created, written, and produced by the show's lead producers, Max Johnston, and me, Bryce Clem. Ben Wittes is our executive producer. Mixing and additional editing from Rebecca Seidel. Production and editorial assistance from Ian Enright, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Kara Schillen, and Megan Nadalski. Theme music and scoring from Max Johnston. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Senior producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadalski and Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, editorial support from Natalie Orpet, Catherine Pompilio, Claudia Swain, and Scott Anderson. A special thanks to Noah Coburn, General Allen, and of course, Fred. Allies is a production from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review the show. It helps spread the word.